so the one thing I was thinking about, and it's kind of in a weird way with the whole option of watching a director's cut longer edition, it made me think of when we talked about The Last Emperor and how I really liked The Last Emperor, but then watching the extended version was like, oh, this is too much and taking forever and I don't like it. The last time before this that I watched Dances with Wolves, it was the extended like four hour edition. And I was just like, oh, this just is this movie isn't as good as I remembered. That's too bad. And that was probably, you know, eight, ten years ago. And then I rewatched it for this, the theatrical version. I'm like, oh, this movie's really good. It's funny how it is just the version you watch can completely change how you see it. So just in general, because Dance with Wolves is an interesting one, and I think it was a big deal at the time, and it's, you, you can look back 30 years later how well it's dated or not. So what, in general, what are your impressions of Dances with Wolves as a film? So I, I liked it. Um, I did. Had you seen it before? I'd never seen it before. This is my first time oh, ever, ever watching it. How I, I, yeah. that, that surprises me with all the stuff you and your dad would watch. I, this, I figured this is right up your guys' alley. Yeah, I did. I don't know. I don't know how or why I never saw this movie, but yeah, this was the first time. It's just one of the ones that kind of slipped through the cracks. It was one of the ones I remember seeing it. It was always on the Academy Award winner shelf oh. at Epic DVD. Yes, exactly. And I would always see it and go like. Oh, I should watch that sometime. And then I would always watch something else. And it was like, you know, anytime I was looking for a movie, I was like, oh, Dances with Wolves. Yeah, I can put that, you know, I'll put a mental check mark there to remember to pick that up sometime. And I just, I just never did. But yeah, no, it was good. There was some really cool, like kind of big set pieces, specifically like the buffalo hunt sequence I thought was really awesome. I liked that they had, there was a lot of attention to detail and care given to like the way that the um, the Sioux had their camp set up and their costumes and the language and all that stuff. It did, it seemed it, while I was watching the movie and then also confirmed this later on during the research, but a lot of that stuff is as accurate as you can get. There was some stuff that I was like, I, I think it's kind of like a, I'll call it the, the Casablanca effect mm-hmm. where it's like things that I would see and I'm like, I don't know, this is kind of like cheesy. Like what this is like, it's using all these like goofy tropes. But then it's like, oh, well, this is the movie that like did all of those things first and then would have been copied by movies that I saw later on. Right. You're like, this is just a ripoff of Avatar. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like, this is like Avatar. It's kind of like Pocahontas. Like this is, you know, there's like these kind of, yeah, like goofy, goofy tropes and stuff. And I was like, oh, actually, that's just because I'm watching this movie after those. But this movie came out before them and it was doing all that stuff first. But yeah, no, I I, I liked it though. Okay, it, yeah, and it's safe. It's, it's not one of my favorite movies, but I, I really do enjoy it too. And it is kind of tricky with how how it's dated. And I would say there's definitely some where it's like maybe it's not quite sappy, but it is it is kind of like overly sentimental at times when you're kind of listening to his voiceover through his journal, and it's just very kind of very philosophical, and it's it's almost maybe too grand grandiose sounding as opposed to being rooted in reality yeah some of the journal stuff like the voiceover it was kind of eye rolly and a a lot of the the romance subplot with him and stands with a fist i kind of also thought was a little bit eye rolly i don't know maybe maybe i wouldn't have thought that if the movie wasn't three hours long but because it was Mm. three hours long it was like i was noticing all the times i was like i feel like this is just adding unneeded length but again this is also based on a book so i I have not read the book so maybe that's there's a lot of stuff like from the book 
that they felt like they needed to carry over. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, potentially. And and again, I think the reason it does still ultimately work, and I would definitely give it a, a thumbs up still, is there's enough humor still sprinkled in that because if you took the humor out, I, this movie would almost be insufferable. That's a good point. The levity that they throw in kind of does make it balances out with some of that over sentimentality to kind of make it work. I guess I had just I had this impression of Dances with Wolves, you know, like, oh, it's the three hour long. It's, you know, the big idea, grandiose story. And it's, you know, super serious. It's an Oscar winner. I guess I just I had this this idea that it was going to be a lot more insufferable than it was. But then I I guess I had never heard of any humor in there. And so when it, those little moments did happen, you're right. It was like, oh, that was like an unexpected little moment of levity and fun that I was not expecting um, at all when I first started watching it. So yeah, that, that it did kind of help kind of break up the parts that without those moments would have been a little overly serious. Yes. So yeah, it is based on a book by Michael Blake, but I was kind of just looking a little bit into that, watching some special features and stuff this morning and based on some things I'd heard before. So Blake was actually primarily a screenwriter and he and Costner were both kind of coming up into Hollywood in the same time in the 80s and both kind of struggling young guys in Hollywood. They had worked on a movie together that I'd never heard of and never seen, but they were kind of friends and all the other friends, you know, everyone in their friend group knew Blake was a really strong writer. He had this idea to write a novel based on Native Americans during the Civil War, and he was really, really fascinated about that. And his buddies basically just convinced him, like, no, seriously, you got to write this book. Every time you talk about this story, you get so excited. We love hearing it. Write the darn book. And what I had heard before, and does kind of fit with what I watched just now on the, the special features, is that he kind of had to choose between, well, I kind of need to get that paying gig so I can pay for rent, or I just need to be, quote, homeless and write this book. And it, but it was kind of just, it wasn't living on the streets, obviously. He was living on Kevin Costner's couch, or one of their other friends ends up being a producer on the film, you know, crashing in his basement, and they, he was just kind of living with his friends, technically homeless, writing the book Dances with Wolves as he finishes it up. One of the friends immediately like wants to option it, and so like even though they don't have a lot of money, they're out there pounding the pavement. One of the friends helps get it published, relatively small run. Kevin's just like dead set on we're gonna make this thing into a film before they have any kind of clout in Hollywood. So this this movie, you know, looking back, it's like oh, it's Dancing with Wolves. It's this massive epic. It won all these Oscars. But it's like it was an yeah. underdog movie they didn't have the clout right. there's no reason to let kevin costner direct this movie other than they did it as cheaply as possible which is crazy right. because this feels like a mega budget film and it really isn't well and and i read too that kevin costner like paid it was like a few million dollars of his own money to like as part of the budget for the movie to help you know make up you know some of their some of their shortcomings because i think they only the movie only costs like 18 million dollars or something like that yeah something like that it was very very cheap not a lot especially especially for a big epic kind of you know sprawling plains civil war and you know indian movie like this one is right um, you would think that the budget would be way higher right but uh, apparently that uh, that was a good investment for coster because with all the box office stuff and then it was you know it was like this massive hit and all the awards and everything and he ended up 
like pers- just Kevin Costner personally made like forty million dollars on this wow. movie. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and again, it's and it's yeah, it's it's they swung for the fences. It was a passion project for all of them. The writer, the directors, like everybody, they were on board. They wanted to make this movie. They weren't going to let the studios compromise because again, we are so used now. We've talked about the language thing before with use of subtitles and not dubbing in for English or using English as a crutch. How it was done for a long time. All again, even up to like Gladiator, ten years after this was very much. English as a proxy kind of thing. And so like the studio, some yeah. studios wanted them to be like, Hey, we love this, but like maybe we could get the natives to learn English a little quicker. So we don't have to do the subtitle thing. And like Kevin Costner would just get up and walk out of the room. Like, like, no, that's not what we're or doing. Or do the, uh, do the, uh, the hunt for red October the where transition. you zoom in on the person's mouth. Right. And then they're speaking English and you zoom back out. Right. Well, and that's especially true too, because all of the natives in this movie are speaking Lakota, which is like, I don't think it's a dead language, but it is certainly a dying language. Like, not very many people speak it. Right. I was just, again, what the line from Graham Greene, who plays Kicking Bird, you know, they said it's going to be in Lakota. He's like, well, I don't speak Lakota. And then they're like, well, you're going to learn. He's like, okay, awesome. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you see about the, uh, so the way that they got them all to learn how to speak it? Uh-uh. They got this lady. Uh, her name is Doris Leaderchard. She's actually in the movie. Um, she plays Pretty Shield, Chief Ten Bear's wife. Hmm. So she was a professor at like a local community college in South Dakota and knew how to speak Lakota. And so they basically went to her and said, hey, will you like we want to make this movie. We want to have everyone speak Lakota. We want it to be, you know, as authentic, yeah, as genuine and authentic and, and accurate as possible. Will you help us? And she agreed. And she was the dialogue coach for the whole cast. Oh, wow. And so, and there's actually, there's a scene in the movie where it's her, like, telling a story, and that was, like, a big deal for her that she was going to get to immortalize that language on film. Yes. So that even in the future, if it turns out that, you know, because, you know, fewer and fewer people every year, every day are speaking Lakota, so she's, you know, that was a big deal for her that she got to immortalize her native language um, on film and bring it to an audience who otherwise probably would have never heard anyone speak Lakota ever. Yeah. I, I know I certainly probably wouldn't have. No, right. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Also, just in general, too, it's it's a movie that's very much like yourself. People who have never seen this movie have definitely heard of it. It's one of those uh, one of those movies. You kind of forget like the title "Dances with Wolves." Like even I've seen I've seen it multiple times and. It didn't occur to you, like, that's the name of the character. <laughs> yeah. The title of the movie is the name of Kevin Costner's character. Was it because it sounds like an action, but it is. It's that native name that's given to him after they see him right. dancing around with two socks, which is actually kind of a neat character in itself as the, as the wolf there. So, yeah, the movie is an 87 slash 87 on Rotten Tomatoes. The one knock it seemed to have in the consensus was that while their intent was to honor native tribes, it's also still maybe overly simplifying the lives of the natives with the good tribe and the bad tribe. And yeah, it's, it's respectful, but maybe too simplistic. Yeah. There's also, I don't necessarily, I don't fault the movie for this, but I know one criticism that I saw was like, Oh, it's like a white savior thing. It's a white savior movie. Mm. And, And I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because to me, it's it's almost like the opposite of that. It's like they're saving him, right? It's like the white guy is being saved, right? But you know, it's it's uh, there was a criticism like, well, we should have stories where we can talk about native tribes, native issues, you know, n- native stories, 
without having to look at it through a white lens or without having to use a white protagonist as the vehicle for that story. No, that's, and that's a great valid point, but good luck getting the money for that in the early 90s. Exactly. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. But that's, I'm just saying that that was, that was another criticism that yeah, I saw. Right. I, I'm, I'm, I don't levy that criticism because I think the movie's great. I think it's fine. Yeah. But that was, that was a criticism that other people seem to have. Uh, one criticism that I would have, uh, it seemed like Kevin Costner's mullet was a little <laughs> 1990s. It uh, definitely I, not 1860s. Yeah. yeah, it didn't really look like he was in the 1860s. It, it kind of just looked like 1990 Kevin Costner, but wearing you know a Union soldier uniform. <laughs> fair, fair. And even though he's only wearing it for like a couple scenes, his fake beard at the beginning is pretty awful as well. <laughs> and yeah, it's crazy to think about too. Like he was a nobody before this, and then became you know one of the biggest stars of the 90s, and probably the biggest star in hollywood i feel like for the first half of the 90s like from oh yeah because this leads into all the other stuff with well actually no i think it was bull durham before this but yeah anyway but like village is probably right before this i guess he was just the untouchables right right like yeah he goes on this kind of big run i guess he had done he had done stuff before but obviously dance with wolves would have been in the works as all those other things are happening you know what i'm saying like he's probably starting on dance with wolves before field of dreams has come out so he kind of just blows up in a couple of years here, pretty darn quickly. Uh, Robin Hood. Robin Hood was huge when I was in middle school. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bull, Bull Durham and Field of Dreams were actually both before this. Okay. But again, so close before this, kind of all at once. Oh, it's it's two years before and one year before, right, respectively. Right, Okay. And then, yeah, after this, after Dances with Wolves, it's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is horrible. JFK, he's in Wyatt Earp in 94. Right. Waterworld, 95. Tin Cup, 96. And then the, honestly, the decline kind of starts there because Waterworld Water World was a huge financial disaster, and yeah. Tin Cup was good, but not obviously Oscar good. Um, and right. then he kind of just mellowed out after that. So like I said, it really was just like that five seven year run where he was the guy. One other, uh, I don't even know if I would necessarily call it a knock, but one one place where you can tell that they saved money was in the injury effects during the battle scenes. For like for his horse and for uh, like when guys are getting shot with arrows or like hit with the tomahawks or whatever, like the way that it's done, it's you could tell it's like it's like a guy shooting an arrow and then a real fast cut and the guy's like holding his chest oh. with the arrow already in him type thing. The nineteen fifties style of doing it, right, right, right. Yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily look bad, but you do notice it as a place. Where it's like all right, they're cutting corners here. Like right when you know the technique, <laughs> saving money, you can kind of <laughs> spot them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the film was nominated for 12 Oscars, winning seven, including Best Picture, Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, and Score. Uh, and you can definitely kind of feel that as, as you're watching it, especially with the ner- early 90s uh, sentimentality, I think, that was kind of in Hollywood at the time. Uh, none of the actors won, but three of them, including Costner, were nominated. I did find, real quick, I want to share, it, it's a far side comic, and I, I mean, I can just kind of say it because it's, it's, uh, the picture doesn't necessarily matter, so... There's a big banner up top that says D-L-D-W-W-S. And then the the caption is, uh, at the international meeting of the Didn't Like Dances with Wolves Society. And the idea is that, like, everyone likes Dances with Wolves. This comic is from 91, the uh, the far side. And one guy's just saying, furthermore, the way they portrayed the cavalry as being insensitive just makes me sick. And then, and then a lady is saying, and the buffaloes, those buffaloes weren't really killed. That was all faked. So 
basically, there's no reason not to like this movie. Come on, people. Okay, so <laughs> while the buffalo were not actually killed, they did actually use real buffalo for that scene. Oh, you can tell. You couldn't do this CG at that time. They had actual stuntmen riding actual horses alongside 3,000 actual buffalo at a giant buffalo ranch called the Triple U Buffalo Ranch in South Dakota. And they basically started a buffalo stampede. They had actual Native American stuntmen riding bareback on horses, riding alongside 3,000 buffalo. That's insane. It's one of the greatest things ever captured on film. Like, it's unreal. A hundred percent. Yeah, it, that, that is honestly that buffalo hunt might be the highlight of the whole movie. I, it was for me. It's spectacular, especially because because during like a lot of the battle scenes and stuff, I was kind of like feeling a little let down, you know, because mm. they were doing the goofy right. like, you know, effects like the 1950s style stuff and then just out of nowhere. And it, it goes on for a long time, yeah. too, but I did not mind. I was like, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> right. This is so awesome. <laughs> like, I'll watch this. I'll watch this for three hours, to be honest. Like, this is a ton of fun. <laughs> And something that today they would probably just use a lot of CG and it just wouldn't look as good. It wouldn't feel real. You can feel the big thing with CG is often the weight of things. Yeah. You can feel the mass of these bison as they are running yeah. through this scene. Like it's real. Oh, yeah. 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 And they have those really cool shots too where they have like the camera kind of in the ground looking up and the yes. buffalo are like running over the top yes. of it. Oh, man. It's, God, it's so good. That's such a good scene. <laughs> So actually, then, with that in mind, it's because it's, uh, again, this movie is it's a fictional story, and so we're not going to detail it too much, and we're going to talk actually about kind of wrapping up the Civil War here. But since we're on Bison, let's go ahead and start with Bison, even though I kind of had that in in the end of my notes here. So Bison uh, were in North America long before humans ever were. We talk about the Bering Strait land bridge and natives coming from Asia over into North and South America and populating that uh, a long time ago. But the bison were here long before any humans. About 10,000 years ago, most of the other large North American mammals went extinct. Your mammoths, giant sloths, things like that all went extinct. So the bison were kind of the last native giant mammal. Because you got to keep remember like horses and cattle and that stuff we're used to are all from Europe. And yeah, they were just an integral part of the plains ecology. The theory, though, is actually that their numbers were fairly small because of native hunting until the Europeans show up and the diseases wipe out 90% of the native population. That drop in native population caused the bison numbers to explode. Huh, okay. Which kind of makes sense. You've taken away their predator. These prey kind of skyrocket. We're just talking about that bison hunt in, in the film. Obviously, before Europeans, they would not have been chasing them on horses because they didn't have horses. Yeah. So, so shooting them with bows wouldn't have been super effective. Although once they were using bows and horses and stuff, everyone would kind of mark their bow. You need your, your arrows. You'd make sure, okay, my arrows have the little blue thing. Your arrows have the little red thing. So there wouldn't be fights over who had actually got the kill on the buff or the bison right. and all that kind of stuff. So they would do lots of different things. Uh, one would be they actually kind of learned, you know, basically kind of got this idea from like coyotes and stuff where you just try to get one off from the group and corral it. So you could have just a group. Again, this might even be on on foot, but just get one and you get like a whole group around it and you just kind of peel it off from the herd just like coyotes do. And they would do that. Or you just kind of chase them the direction you wanted them to go. So we, they would drive a whole herd over ice to either get them to like slip and fall down and you could kill it or if it was like a frozen river that was like thin ice they would walk on it and then fall through and drown and then you would just take the, the drowned bison uh out of the river 
or they'd straight up run them off of cliffs and yeah. just get them to they'd be, all right they just have the crushed bison at the bottom of the cliff that you you can go and get um or just pins they would kind of say okay the bison herds over here we're gonna put up this pin then we go around and we just chase them and, and some are gonna end up in our pen and boom we just caught a bunch of bison so those are all the kind of yeah. ways they would uh they would deal with it uh, pre-horses and some of those methods were still being used after horses i saw a thing where they were doing it was like a, a documentary talking about how they would how they were hunting bison before horses were introduced like mm. you know this is like pre-1600s and um, they were talking about you know when they would like you know separate like one you know small or maybe sick bison that would be easier to kill similar to how like a wolf pack or a coyote pack would maybe do the same thing but they would in order to not spook the bison they would get like skins and like wear them over their mm. whole body and walk and walk on all fours like hands and knees and basically it it would take them like all day to hunt like one bison because they would like slowly walk up hands and knees with animal skins on so they don't look like humans right and then like slowly get close enough to take down yeah like one or two uh, bison no and I, I feel like i've seen that in films in the past too where it, it kind of makes sense it seems silly but like when you're hunting for survival it's like dude if that works awesome perfect idea yeah then yeah so there were a lot of conflicts that arose between native american tribes both from uh as as tribes migrated, whether forced or otherwise, that would lead to conflicts. And then just as the bison numbers started to reduce with overhunting, not just, uh, basically, the whites weren't always the exclusive enemy. Sometimes it was like, okay, yes, the whites have reduced the bison number with their hunting, overhunting, and then the tribes end up fighting each other over what little bison remain and territories and all that kind of stuff. And weaker tribes might even ask the U.S. Army for help. So, History is just always so many more shades of complicated where you think about, you know, a tribe mad at the whites for killing all the bison, but then they might also then ask those same white soldiers, hey, but you could you help us fight this other tribe so we can have the bison that are left? Like, it was just all kinds of complicated. As the railroad expanded west, you would see, well, a couple of things. One, the railroad obviously wanted the herd stand out because uh, having bison roaming wild around when you're trying to have a train go through doesn't work very well if all of a sudden a bunch of bison are on the trail railroad tracks but you would even right. have stories of these passenger trains because the trains weren't super fast at first passenger trains oh there's a herd of buffalo and everyone would roll down their windows and they would be shooting the bison from the trains or get up on top of the trains and start just kind of shooting the bison in the field as they would go by headshots were actually avoided if possible it said because their skulls were so hard that it was you couldn't even penetrate them with the weapons they had at the time the kind of musket load stuff <laughs> civil war style wouldn't even pierce a, a bison skull and that's a that's something that in guns germs and steel and then also cgp gray did a video about this where he was talking about like how there are no like domesticatable oh right animals on on the north american continent but there are in in europe and it's like oh well you know a bison seems pretty similar to a cow it's like no like a bison you can't it's an angry cow on steroids right you exactly exactly (laughs) it's they're they're like they're way more ferocious they're way faster i mean just like in the scene where the buffalo are running i mean it's they're screaming i mean it's like probably 30 or 40 miles an hour they're running down the place right you can't you can't catch a bunch of them and even if you do catch them you can't keep them in anything because they're just going to break down or jump over or run around whatever pin you try to put up 
I'm just picturing a bison running at full clip and T-boning a cow, and it just splits the cow in half and just keeps <laughs> running through it. Like <laughs> these things are mean, angry tanks. Yes, I, that's like there, there's still incidents today because people cows here, you know, minus a bull, I guess that's angry, are seem fairly benign. But like you know, it, they, there's signs everywhere at Yellowstone National Park, like do not get within a hundred yards of the bison, and then people yes. don't listen and they get knocked out like the bison. They'll yeah. seem fine. You'll be 20, 20 yards away from a bison. And it's like, oh, it's just eating the grass. And all of a sudden, it decides you need to go. And it will just charge you and flip you up into the air. And like, yeah. no, they are bastards. <laughs> They're the largest land animals in North America. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you, you know, you think about like, oh, man, I wouldn't want to mess with like a moose or like a bear or something because it's like a big animal that might hurt me. It's like, yeah. Bison are bigger. Oh, I didn't think about that. So they're not, they're not as tall as, as moose, but they are heavier. I didn't think about yeah, that. Yeah, right. Size, heft, huh. heft-wise. That's yeah, crazy. They're like, they weigh a ton, literally a ton, like 2,000 pounds. Yeah. No, yeah. And they can run f- like 40 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, getting, it's like getting hit by a car. Oh, absolutely. A car with a bulletproof skull with horns on it. <laughs> a, car, a car that can see you and chase you of its own accord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's and there's thousands of them. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with bison. Yeah, okay. So uh, one I thought too was interesting too. So the uh, a non obvious to me use for the hides in the 18th century was uh, industrial machine belts. You think about how strong and sturdy mm. the natives obviously were using them in hides for tents and clothes and stuff. That yeah, they were being yeah. used for industrial machine belts. But uh, uh, yes, uh, as we kind of are all aware, they were ultimately hunted to near extinction by the white settlers. By the 1880s, there were fewer than 100 bison left in the wild. And, and there were literally millions before the overhunting of the late 1700s, early 1800s. And like we see in the film, the process of the whites coming through and just taking their hides and tongues and leaving the rest to rot, that's accurate. Why the tongues? I, I actually am not sure. I think it may be just like a delicacy kind of thing. But huh, I guess I don't okay. know why you would eat the tongue and not the rest of it unless it's just a... I don't know. Logistics thing. The rest is going to rot. But we, I, I don't know. I actually didn't. I don't know why it was the tongues, but it was the tongues. And they mentioned that in the film as well. So there are obviously economic incentives of selling the hides and everything out east. But the government knew exactly what it was doing. The goal was to remove a food source from the Native Americans so they wouldn't be in, quote, our way anymore. We've talked about it, obviously, here and there. But we probably haven't really talked about it near enough that, like, there were people already living in this country, and our government was never interested in coexisting with them. No. The possible exception we've mentioned is, like, they would have been maybe okay with natives integrating into, quote, modern society. But ultimately, the United States government just saw them as savages whose culture had no place in our territory. And right. every effort was made to get rid of them. Exterminating the bison was part of that. Right. It was like... The idea was like, oh, we'll we'll compromise with you. We won't just, well, we don't need to just outright genocide you if you will just, you know, integrate with us and start wearing, you know, suits and top hats and speaking English. Right. You know, then then you you can be allowed to live that way. Right. But yeah, just no consideration given to uh, any kind of coexistence or, you know, God forbid, letting them like have their own territory. Right. And, and you, you would have, there was some sentiment, you know, like, like a Buffalo Bill Cody, people like that were advocating to protect the bison from e- extinction. But as far as the government was concerned, or most people in the government were concerned, 
they were totally fine driving the bison extinct if that just got the natives out of our way. Yeah. It was ridiculous. By the time you get to the turn of the century, turn of the 19th century, there was a rising sentiment to save, save the bison. The American Bison Society was established in 1905. This is about the time you have Teddy Roosevelt as big with all of his uh, preservation efforts. The famous Buffalo Nickel came out in 1913. That was kind of a, just an awareness-raising thing. The populations have rebounded somewhat. Today's estimated, so we mentioned it was you know under 100 wild bison. Um, now it's around 350,000. Um, now I guess I'm not sure all, how many of those are wild. A lot of them are you know in pens and stuff. And I think Ted Turner, you know the media guy, is actually like the largest private owner of bison in the world. Oh, really? Well, they're they're raised for. Um... They're like raised as like part of agriculture now too. Like oh yeah, you like, know, for yeah. like for meat and stuff. Yeah, I've had bison burgers. Have you? But yeah, bison oh burgers? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's good. And the fact that it's you know they're not at risk now. You don't have to feel like you're uh, right. Oops, I just ate the last bison. <laughs> but yeah, nowhere near as hype, but the extinction threat is is kind of gone now. And then uh, there's actually even because the numbers have rebounded in certain areas in the country, it is legal again to hunt wild bison uh, because mm. the numbers are now safe enough. Don't do that in national parks. <laughs> yeah. Man, that would still be... I, mean, I guess you would know where the herd is and stuff, but that would still be kind of scary, man, just to go out there with like... Have you not, have you not been to the national parks around the bison? No, 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 no. I, oh. I'm saying to hunt, to hunt oh. wild bison, you know? Yeah. Especially if it's like just you or maybe you and just like one other person or a couple other people and it's like you're just going up to a herd of bison. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, with a rifle, you can shoot them from from far enough away no, that right, it probably right. is is relatively safe. But yeah, modern rifles can probably pierce the skulls, and uh, and you would be so far away they might not even notice you. Yeah, and they would probably just scatter once you once you shot one. But uh, also, too, it depends on where you're at. I, I don't know where this would be legal. So, like in the national parks, they're so habituated to seeing cars and people and stuff that they don't really balk too often unless you get like up in their business. And so, I wonder if the ones just outside the park and potentially legally huntable areas are also equally habituated and also potentially easy targets because of that i don't really know yeah i don't know it's crazy the last time i was in yellowstone it is kind of hit or miss depending i think on time of year and all those kinds of things they were everywhere like no exaggeration i probably saw you know three four hundred bison in you know a couple days at yellowstone national park it's kind of funny you see like a bunch of people pulled over oh look there's one and then like half an hour later like oh there's a hundred in that field right now (laughs) And yeah. people will be like, oh, is it that big? And they're like, well, yeah, they're wild. Like, yeah, because there's people around town here that have like, you know, a raisin or eat, like for agriculture, like you said, or having pins. But like, mm-hmm. we're talking wild bison roaming around Yellowstone National Park. It's pretty neat to yeah. see them by the hundreds just kind of chilling in a field or something. So, yes, we'll go, real quickly, looking through the, the film here, it is a story everyone's kind of familiar with as far as a kind of disaffected soldier isolated on the frontier coming into contact with natives and slowly becoming enamored with their culture and assimilating himself within it that's essentially the story it's all fictional but looking at a few other things in detail so even the first battle where we first meet kevin costner's character was it uh, john dunbar is that his name yeah they it says on the field saint david's field tennessee 1863 that's a made-up battle that's not a real thing I don't even know if St. David's Field is real. Because actually, when you type in St. David's Field, it pulls up Dances with Wolves. So it's not a real place. Oh, okay. And, and it's also kind of weird, too. So basically, he's about to lose his leg. 
and he doesn't want to lose his leg. He's basically wants to almost like kill himself as opposed to losing his leg. And he goes on this yeah. weird kind of suicide run, which again, even from the beginning, seems a little bit odd or out of place. And part of that over sentimentality thing where he's kind of like, again, he's almost trying to commit suicide by just riding out in the open uh, in front of the southern troops. Basically, it's like a, it's like a, I want to go out in battle. I don't want to go out because I'm going to get an infection or bleed out from getting my leg cut off. So I'm just going to get, he just gets on a horse and just literally rides like long ways across the front of the Confederate lines and they're shooting at him the whole time. Right. But one, it's weird. It's like, well, if you really wanted to die in battle, we'll grab a rifle and charge at them. He doesn't do that. Um, He's running parallel with their line. But it's also kind of, it is kind of, fun's a weird word, but basically both sides are kind of entrenched and bored. And so when this quote crazy guy starts riding by, the southern southern boy is just like, <laughs> and there's basically treat like a shooting gallery, and then he, he makes it through clean. They're like, "Come on back, come on back, we'll get you this time." And it's almost like becomes right. a game, and right. they're just kind of having fun with this guy's life. Yeah. But then the union uses it as an opportunity, basically as a distraction, to then charge and then right. kind of win in the day and send the south back. And then so the general there is like, "By golly, get this man the best physician. We'll save that leg." And just. Also seems right. kind of odd. Like, dude, don't do that, even if it works. It's just a, it's just a weird, weird little moment. Yeah. But it gets him kind of decorated, and essentially the idea is he gets to now pick his post. Right. And he chooses to go out west to see the frontier. And the right. first spot we see him then is in Fort Hayes. Okay, is, is Fort Hayes, is that where he meets the major that's, like, lost his mind? Yes. Yeah, that's And he's calling him Sir Knight? Okay. Yeah, yeah. That was another scene that... I, I liked it. Like, it works. It's it's especially kind of interesting to see, like, I, I don't know if they're trying to, to say, if the movie was trying to say that that guy was, like, he just had, like, PTSD, or if he was, like, just had some other sort of mental illness. But it was, it was like, interesting to see someone like that in that setting and time period. But mm-hmm. I also was like, why was that? Why was that choice made? Or maybe that's just, again, maybe that might be something from the book that I just don't. Uh... Yeah, I've I've not read the book either. It to me, it feels like something that's a holdover from the book that maybe would feel less weird on the page. Yeah, it's just so strange because it's like five minutes and then it's like never referenced again. It doesn't right. It doesn't factor into anything else. It's like this weird. The major that he's talking to is very clearly mentally ill. He like has all these like strange like mannerisms like when he writes the order for him to go to Fort Cedric and he like folds it up like 10 times yeah in, into like a tiny little ball and uh he keeps calling him like Sir Knight and talking in like a in like a bad British accent like he's giving a medieval quest right 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 yeah and he, like he called the guy that's gonna take him there he calls him oh you see that peasant out there yes and then yeah at the end he stands up and is like I've pissed in my pants and no one can do anything about it. it's like it's so weird. And then, of course, he shoots himself in the head, like, as soon as Kevin Costner leaves. Right. So the way I always interpreted that, although on rewatch, I don't know why I think this, but it, it does kind of work. That So if we're going to have this soldier get assigned out west, but it's also an abandoned post, and it seems like there's no reason for him to be there. So the way I had interpreted it in the past, and I guess it kind of works, even though maybe it's not there, you needed a crazy guy to post him out at this station that no one should be stationed at. Oh, gotcha. Why else is he there? Oh, because a crazy guy sent him there. Okay. But I don't know if that's really in. I might be reading too much into that. I, I don't know. I don't know. 
because the fort is fairly recently abandoned. Right. Means Meaning there were people there. So that's, it is kind of odd. It is kind of odd. And so Fort Hayes was a real place, obviously. Uh, Hayes, Kansas right. is still there. Uh, but Fort Hayes did not yet exist in 1863. <laughs> okay. So the only thing you can give it a pass, unless the film is trying to say it's been three to four years have passed since that opening battle, which I don't think is the implication. The idea is the war is still going on. And he's just kind of heading out west here. So there was no Fort Hayes yet. Before it was Fort Hayes, it was originally called Fort Fletcher. Uh, and then it was named for General Alexander Hayes, who died in battle in 1864. Although he had little or no Kansas connection that I could find. The fort was also originally 15 miles to the southeast uh, from where it is today. So the historic fort, you can still visit. It's right on the outskirts of Hayes, Kansas. Uh, you mm-hmm. drive by it as you're on I-70 as you're going into Hayes, Kansas. But the original fort was actually 15 miles to the southeast. They moved it in 1867 after a flood killed nine people. And then moving it also put them closer to the railroad. So it kind of made sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, soon after it moved, Hayes City, which is now Hayes, Kansas, uh, was established uh, right nearby. Uh, it had a lot of famous names go through Fort Hayes. Uh, General Phil Sheridan, uh, George Custer, Wild Bill Hickok, Buffalo Bill Cody. Uh, They all were stationed out of uh, Fort Hayes at various points. The fort was closed and abandoned in 1889 and just kind of set unused. Uh, But in its first couple years of existence, the the school that is now Fort Hayes State University did actually use the old buildings of the fort for like the first couple years that the school uh, started. Oh, okay. See, that's a question that I kind of always had was why is the college in Hayes called Fort Hayes State. Why not right. just Hayes State? Why why have the like explicit connection to the old fort that's there? That right. makes sense. Right. So and it wasn't called that at first, so then it moved to its new location and then it was still actually kind of technically a branch of a different college. But it made sense to then name it. They did actually start in the fort, which is kind of neat. And, and and yeah, incidentally that is where my parents uh went to college was Fort Hayes State University. Fort Sedgwick uh, similarly, also did not yet exist in 1863, but it uh, it did kind of uh, get built up right after that and did start as a couple of sod huts, very similar to what we see in the film. And it was named for Union General John Sedgwick, uh, who is the same namesake for Sedgwick County, Kansas, where I sit right now as we record this. <laughs> and he, unlike Hayes, he did actually serve in Kansas and then led a group into Colorado, which makes sense that you would have things in Kansas and Colorado named for uh, John Sedgwick. He was injured at Antietam and then was later killed by a sharpshooter in Virginia in 1864 during the war. And uh, his last words um, are kind of funny in retrospect because uh, John Sedgwick's last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) He was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) He was shot and killed soon after saying those words. Uh, He was actually one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, ranking Union general to be killed during the war, which I thought was kind of interesting. Okay. And then uh, Fort Sedgwick, uh, likewise, was abandoned in 1871. Unlike Fort Hayes, I don't think it remains anymore. Like I just said, you can see old Fort Hayes. I think Fort Sedgwick is gone. So then the the tribes... Actually, before we get into the tribes, why don't we go ahead, since we did kind of talk about the forts there, 
and we really won't have anything else on the war. Why don't you? Why don't you go ahead and maybe let's finish up the Civil War from the perspective okay. of our listeners, kind of everything up to this point where we've talked about the beginnings of the war, Gettysburg, and some other things down south. So, like, let's let's wrap up the Civil War fighting here for everybody. All right. So I don't remember exactly where we left off. I think oh, it's, it was for glory. It was like July, August-ish, 1863. So the same time as Glory and Gettysburg, you've got the defeat of General Lee in Gettysburg on July 3rd in 1863. And then we also talked, I think we've we've mentioned at least Grant on the Mississippi and the siege at Vicksburg. Yes. Which the siege ended on July 4th, so the day after the Battle of Gettysburg. Oh, wow, yeah. So the siege of Vicksburg ends on July 4th when the Confederates surrendered after a nearly two-month-long siege, and that gave the Union control of the entire Mississippi River. So those two events, the defeat of Lee at Gettysburg and the defeat by Grant of the Confederate forces at Vicksburg, that's like the big turning point in the war. Oh, wow. So July 1863 is when the whole war turns in favor of the North. Pretty much, pretty yeah. much. There were still a couple of more close calls okay. in the South. You know, had, they weren't out of the fight, but that's like okay. that's like a the a, a big moment, July third and fourth, where you have Lee defeated, which he was kind of invincible. I mean, at that point, yeah. it's maybe invincible, and then you know, cutting the Confederacy in half, so you have uh, you know Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas are now kind of cut off from the rest of mm. the Confederacy. So Grant won. After Vicksburg, Grant won several more victories out west, including breaking the siege of Chattanooga. And so because of all of that, he was then promoted to be general-in-chief of the Union Army. So up until then, the separate armies were under the command of their own general, but there was no unified command for the entire Union Army. Right. Lincoln changed that when he put Grant in charge of all Union forces. And it was actually then, I think the next year that Lee was also, he was made general in chief for all of the Confederate forces. So the Confederacy unified their command as well. So because it was 1864, and because 1864 was an election year, Lincoln was starting to feel a little desperate, because the war, like we talked about in Gangs of New York, Pretty unpopular, actually, in the North. Um, There were a lot of people that didn't like it. And so with the war kind of coming almost to a stalemate, Abraham Lincoln didn't want, like, war fatigue to set in. And he didn't want to basically lose an election because someone would be able to resonate with the people by saying, oh, elect me and I'll end the war. I'll negotiate. We'll just have two countries and, you know, who cares? It'll be fine. We'll, like, come to some agreement and we'll end the war because it's super unpopular. and. We're probably not going to win anyway, so like, let's just kind of get it over with. So Lincoln, one of the reasons that he made Grant General-in-Chief is he's like, we need to start having some victories, we need to get momentum, we need to get the people in the, in the Union kind of back on the side of, all right let's, right, let's continue the war effort. So Grant was kind of like, all right, we're just going to start pushing hard on all fronts. So he wanted a push by the forces in New Orleans to Mobile. Alabama. He wanted General Sherman to push to Atlanta, and he wanted and he wanted the uh, the Army of the Potomac, which he was going to join, to start pushing towards Richmond. So he kind of wanted to start taking the fight to the Confederacy on all fronts, all at once. Part of this strategy that was actually 
controversial was that during Grant's push to Richmond with the Army of the Potomac, he realized that he had way more troops than Lee. So even though Lee was arguably the better tactician and would make these, you know, victories and kind of smash the Union wherever they would try and meet him to confront him on the battlefield, Grant was like, well, I just have more guys. So we'll just keep coming forward. Zerg, Zerg attack? <laughs> yeah, my guys, you know, you, you're not going to be able to kill all of us because, like, we just have way more guys than you. So even if you kill a lot of them, there's still more behind them that are going to keep coming in. And so they, Grant was actually called the butcher in the press because he was getting, Oof. like, literally tens of thousands of Union soldiers killed. We think that go against Lincoln's plan of increasing the morale, but I guess if you're winning, you're winning. Right. Well, and he was also killing tens of thousands of Confederate troops. And wow. think about it, for you know, for every loss, like the Confederacy can't sustain losses like the Union can. Right. If it's one to one, the Union wins. Right. Exactly. Even if it was like two or three to one, the wow. Union is still Winning. is still going to be up in the numbers. Huh. So he uses his his superior numerical power to push Lee back all the way to Richmond. And then he attempts to outflank Lee by cutting supplies to the south at a town called Petersburg. But Lee kind of dug in there, and the town was put to siege. It would actually stay under siege for almost 300 days. Wow. But we'll come back to Petersburg. So at the same time that uh, Grant is making that push down to, Peter, er, to Richmond, the Confederate General Jubal Early is making a push to D.C. to try to threaten Washington, D.C., and actually made it all the way to the outskirts of the city, and reportedly Lincoln was able to observe the battle directly because it was so close. Hmm. But they ended up being pushed back. They weren't able to take the city, and they had to retreat back into Virginia. So the guy running for election against Lincoln in the 1864 election was uh, McClellan, the guy that used to be the general, the one that Lincoln fired. He then was going to run well, he did run for president in 1864 against Lincoln. That was his main opponent. So Lincoln really needs a victory. And that victory comes with General Sherman in Atlanta. So General Sherman cuts the supply lines to Atlanta and forces General Hood to retreat on July 22nd, 1864. That victory was major enough that it boosted morale in the North and actually led to Lincoln winning a decisive victory electorally okay. over McClellan in the 1864 election. Huh. Once Lincoln gets elected, his top priority is the 13th Amendment, which we'll actually talk about next time, so I won't go into that right now. Right. And after Sherman's big victory at Atlanta, he wants to try and basically smash the Confederacy's ability to drag the war on. So he, at this point, he's like, all right, we can win. We're probably going to win. But how we win matters. Yeah. Well, and the Confederates just haven't realized that or they don't want to accept that yet. Oh. So I'm going to make it as painful as possible for them to keep continuing this fight. So he has a novel idea. Well, it's not really a novel idea. Like armies have been doing this for a long time. But he has the idea of, well, I'm not going to just, you know, march face first into the Confederate army. I'm going to start attacking all of the things that supply the Confederate army. So. He leaves all of his supply lines behind at Atlanta and says, we're going to go all the way to Savannah, Georgia, which is on the coast, and we're just going to live off the land the whole way and burn everything behind us. Doesn't this have a famous name like Sherman's March? Or This is called Sherman's March to the Sea, and it took place yeah. between November and December of 1864. Okay. So he leaves all of his supply lines behind and marches his army along, and they're just living off the land. 
you know, they come up to a farm, they just take all the food and then burn it. And they also destroy a bunch of infrastructure. They tear up rail lines. They cut telegraph wires. And they free every slave that they come across. Right. So in their wake is like just a couple mile wide swath of completely burnt farmland, unusable railroads, severed telephone or telegraph wires, and free slaves. Hmm. And he does uh, end up making it to Savannah in December of 1864. Inflation adjusted damages for Sherman's March to the Sea estimated at $1.4 billion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, he, he did some damage. Wow. So that siege that I talked about that Lee was in in Petersburg in April, on April 2nd, actually, in 1865, that siege breaks. And this kind of like the beginning of the end for Lee's army. So Lee flees west in hopes of meeting up with General Johnston, who was fighting Sherman, who is at this point in North Carolina now. And the Union Army moves on Richmond and Jefferson Davis flees. On their way out of town, while they're evacuating, the Confederate Army, I guess in order to deny the Union Army the space and probably also to, you know, try and hide secrets or whatever, military secrets, they set all of their military facilities on fire, all of their headquarters, buildings and stuff in Richmond. They set them on fire. But the fires all spread and kind of the whole city is on fire and so the union soldiers show up and there's no one like the the city's been evacuated all the confederate soldiers are gone and so the union soldiers show up and immediately have to just like start fighting fires just throwing buckets of water and stuff trying to get the fires under control i already mentioned that jefferson davis fled um i didn't didn't go into a ton of detail on the rest of his life but i will kind of just talk about what i have here so he flees he ends up trying to fight with some militia forces, but he is eventually captured in May of 1865. He's put in prison, um, and he's kept there for a couple of years, but the American government can't really decide what they want to do with him, because they don't, they don't want to just, like, let him off the hook, but they also don't really want to make a martyr out of him. Right. Um, and they, they were offering pardons to a bunch of the generals and stuff, like we talked about in, in the, when we talked about Robert E. Lee. They're kind of like, well, we just kind of like have this guy. We're not really sure how we should proceed. Um, He ends up being released from prison and goes and lives in Canada for a little while, which I guess when he was arrested, the rest of his family went to Canada. Then he moved to England for a little bit and tried to try to do some business ventures and then uh, was unsuccessful, came back to the United States. He wrote some books and then uh, he died in 1889. Okay. Yeah, he just kind of he just got sick in 1889, bronchitis and malaria, and died uh, on December 6th. So that's Jefferson Davis. Okay. So after the Union soldiers put out the fires in uh, Richmond and most of the city burns down, they pursue Lee's forces to the Appomattox Courthouse, where they meet and surround him on on April 9th in 1865. There is a little bit of a fight, but then Lee kind of realizes that his he, you know it's pointless to keep to keep fighting even you know he he's he's not going to win and even if by some miracle he did like there's so many so many issues in the rest of the confederacy and like their capital is captured so he just kind of realizes that it's time to it's time to be done um and he surrenders to grant at the appomattox or actually it was, it was at a guy's house in appomattox on april 9th 1865 
A few days later, on April 14th, Lincoln is assassinated, which again, we're doing our Lincoln episode next, so we won't go into detail, but that's when that happened. And then in the single biggest surrender of the war, General Johnston surrendered his 90,000 troops to Sherman on April 26th in 1865. There isn't really a solid date as to like when the Civil War ended, because... Mm. It's not like, uh, you know, in a World War One or World War Two, where communication is fast enough that when the war's over, it's over. So, like, Lee and Lee had surrendered on April 9th. Johnson surrenders on April 26th. But then you have the Battle of Palmito Ranch, which is the last battle of the Civil War, is fought on May 13th in 1865 because it's in Texas. So they right. just didn't know that the war was over or basically over. And so they're still, like, they're still fighting just like normal. Kind of like the Battle of New Orleans 50 years earlier, after the War of 1812 was actually over, yeah. Right, and that's, like, the most famous battle of the War of 1812, and it was actually fought after the war was already over. Right. I've actually been to that uh, battlefield in uh, in Texas. Actually, it's pretty cool. Oh, huh. And then on uh, May 26th, 1865... The Trans-Mississippi Department forces, so that's the uh, the forces of Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas, they surrendered. Um, and that's kind of what historians consider to be, the you end, know, if, end, you have to, right. if you have to put a date on the end of it, it's May 26, 1865, because it's like the... Nothing happens after that, yeah. The last, the last major surrender of, like, mass forces. Okay. Juneteenth, so uh, on June 19th, 1865, General Gordon Granger announced the end of slavery in Texas, and that's when the last Confederate slaves were freed. Um, That's now a national holiday, June 19th, as of 2020, I think, right? Wasn't that the first first Juneteenth as a national holiday? Or was it 2021? I was thinking it was maybe... Yeah, that sounds about right. But also, like, I guess I thought that was... Was that not connected to the 13th Amendment? It's connected to the freeing of slaves in Texas? Or is it both? Well, that's... it's So the... uh, No, it was uh, General Order Number 3 which was the freeing of the slaves. An American legal decree issued in 1865 enforcing the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm. So it's basically when, when the, the news of and the official enforcement of the Emancipation Proclamation reached Texas, which was like the furthest part away in the Confederacy, that was like the final freeing of the last slaves in the Confederacy was in Texas. And that, uh, that announcement okay. of General Order Number 3 by Gordon Granger happened on June 19th. And so that's why they celebrate that day as Juneteenth. Right. So even though you have the emancipation population you know, going to effect like July or shoot, actually that's, that goes back to 1863, January 1st or whatever. And then the, the 13th Amendment uh, in 64, 65. But all, technically all that's irrelevant until the slaves are actually free so right. the holidays for when they were actually free. Okay. Right. Because that makes so the sense. right, like the Emancipation Proclamation freed all of the slaves in all of the Confederacy, you know, on paper. Legally, on paper. Right. Legally by the standards of the Union on paper, but while there was still a Confederacy and there was still a war going on, none of that they was were ever going to be enforced. Right. It was it was a moot point until they actually got there in the war. Yeah. And won the war, right. That makes sense. So then the war was actually officially and legally ended on August 20th, 1866. 66? Right, which was far after all of the fighting and stuff was done. But it was legally and officially ended August 20th, 1866, 
by a proclamation from Andrew Johnson, the president at the time, who said, quote, that the said insurrection is at an end and that peace, order, tranquility, and civil authority now exist in and throughout the whole of the United States of America. Okay. So okay. that's like the official the official end of the Civil War. Okay. We did it. Uh, so let's uh, let's go back to uh, the movie real quick. And I, it, another big point of this movie and, and something we definitely need to talk about here is uh, Native Americans. And we've definitely talked about Native Americans uh, throughout our American History Project here. And every time, though, I want to like, okay, we've got to really do justice for the Native Americans. It's just so overwhelming because it's so complicated. All the tribal histories and the geography and who was where, like, I, it's, frankly, we're incapable of doing it justice in this format because I feel like I'd have to get a whole master's degree or do a PhD dissertation just to kind of get my head around this stuff and enough to kind of do it the credit it deserves. Give it the, anyway, do it justice. But, so... Everything here will be simplified, as always, and I apologize for any mistakes, but this is my understanding. So, yes, in the film, the tribe that John Dunbar becomes uh, friendly with and becomes ultimately a part of uh, is the Sioux. And we mentioned Lakota. They speak Lakota. That's because uh, Sioux is a very broad group, and tribes like the Dakota and Lakota are under the umbrella of Sioux tribes. Um, So, yes, uh, speaking Lakota would be accurate to that. Um, although the they were mostly in the upper Midwest, kind of toward the Great Lakes area, so kind of like the Dakotas, Nebraska, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, all that area. That's where the Sioux were, which is why you have like Sioux Falls and all those kinds of things in that area. As far as conflicts go, in the mid-1860s, uh, we did get something called the Colorado War, when natives just weren't happy with all the massive influx of white settlers in the area. Uh, some Sioux were involved in that conflict. And this kind of, to me, this kind of feels like some of the stuff that we feel is coming at the end of the film as more soldiers now occupy Fort Sedgwick and they're fighting the natives and pushing the natives out of their area. Like, that kind of feels like we're on the cusp of this Colorado War uh, that did happen in the 1860s. But that Colorado War, while it did have some Sioux involved, was actually mostly with the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. When we get to the Battle of Little Bighorn in a few weeks here, after we do Lincoln and all that, famous names like Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse are both Lakota men. Um, Mm -hmm. And we'll definitely talk more about them later. Uh, In the book, it's actually not the Sioux. It's the Comanche that John Dunbar uh, joins. But geographically, again, if Fort Sedgwick is in Colorado, that seems not quite right either. The Comanche were mostly, mostly in like, way southern Colorado into like Texas, Oklahoma, and, and some in Kansas. And then the Pawnee are the rival tribe in the film that just seem a little more warlike and are trying to fight the Lakota, the Sioux, whenever they can. They're also the tribe that we see, aren't they, is it the, is it the, the, at the end, the tribe that has their warriors helping the, like the American soldiers when they are like in the mountains? Are those supposed to be Pawnee as well? I think that's the implication. I don't know if it explicitly says, but... And I think that's probably part of that oversimplification, that they're just saying, good, peaceful, buffalo hunting tribe Sioux, bad guys always fighting them, and then joining the bad whites are the Pawnee. Like, again, it's all just kind of oversimplification stuff, obviously. But again, the Pawnee weren't really in Colorado either. They were kind of mostly Kansas and Nebraska. But there was real conflicts between the Sioux and the Pawnee, 
just not in Colorado that I could find. Hmm. So, again, this is all overwhelming and I have a hard time getting my head around it. But uh, my guess is I feel like the tribe they should have used is the Cheyenne. Which kind of makes sense if you think about where Cheyenne, Wyoming is, just north of the Colorado, what you know, the Colorado border, and like not too far from Fort Sedgwick, and they would have been the tribe that actually would have been, I think, in this area. So it just seems odd that the Cheyenne weren't chosen. And again, unless I'm way off base because all this stuff is really complicated. I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that like the filming locations were all in in South Dakota. That's a great point. Yeah. And so like because that's where they're filming. Like the the lady that they get to help them with the languages and stuff, she was Sue. Right. Yeah. It would have been impossible to maybe do it in Cheyenne. Right. You're right. And like, so I, I mean, most of the 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 extras and stuff that they're able to get in that area are probably of you know Sioux heritage and not actually Comanche or whatever it is in the book. So maybe that is a decision you know that was made to even if it's not a hundred percent accurate to the geography or to the source material in the book if it's like oh well we have like we can make a very you know accurate and very faithful depiction of Sioux culture let's just do that instead of trying to wing it with a different a different tribe that we don't know as much about and don't have access to the amount of you know knowledge and expertise that we have when it comes to the Sioux. Right, of course, then I'm like, well, then then why not just send him, instead of sending him from Fort Hayes to Fort Cedric in Colorado, send him up to some fort up in South Dakota. So I don't know, just, because, anyway. because that's not what happened. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, I also like, so I, I could say, oh, well, then even in the book of his Comanche, maybe that should have been Cheyenne. But I also will guarantee that Michael Blake did way more research than I did. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. take it all for what it's yeah. worth there, I guess. And uh, just my one note on the Cheyenne was that they were originally from the Great Lakes slash Minnesota area uh, before actually being pushed uh, southwest to Colorado by the Sioux, mm. ultimately. So, we, you know, the tribes would always kind of migrate around like that. Oh, I actually saw a thing that, that talked about uh, how the Sioux specifically, prior to the introduction of the horse, they were more like stationary agriculture farming mm. society. But then with the introduction of the horse, they were able to more easily hunt buffalo and then became more nomadic, you know, in like the 1600s. Oh, interesting. And right, the 1700s. Right. And uh. it kind of the, the horse like transformed their whole society. And that's when they moved. They were, you know, originally further east, but then moved out into the plains because that's where all the buffalo were. And they were able to move a lot faster. Okay. And then like the Cheyenne, then they're then forced out of that territory if the Sioux, Sioux are, you know, stronger. And then they end up in Colorado. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. During the Civil War, that's kind of I do want to kind of use this opportunity to talk about Native Americans during the Civil War. Again, it's very complicated. There's also not great records on some of this stuff. Yeah, but yes, there, there were Native Americans fighting during the Civil War, and a lot of times on the side of the South, who they thought would maybe give them better deals on treaties and stuff. So looking at uh, specifically at, at a few, it, it varied widely. There's kind of every possible you can think of here, but uh, there was one small tribe in uh, South Carolina. Uh, I found it was loyal to the South, but they only provided like 20 troops. Uh, the Cherokee uh, is a big name that sided with uh, the South. And again, just because they were hoping with, you know, if again, if all your relationships in the past are with the United States of America, and now this new country has broken away from the United States of America, you're like, well, hey, we don't like the United States of America because they've been screwing us over for 100 years. So maybe we'll join in with this Confederacy and like get lands back that were taken away from us. Or maybe, hey, we 
can't trust the United States. Maybe we can trust this new country to give us a fair shake. Maybe they'll let us have, and I think maybe some of these promises maybe even were made, maybe they'll let us have an independent state of our own. We actually need to keep this land and say this is now a native country for all intents and purposes. About 3,000 Cherokee fought for the South at the end of the day there. Uh, likewise, the Choctaw joined the South after initially hoping to remain uh, neutral. They had moved, been moved west of the Mississippi uh, in the decades prior to the war and were kind of thriving in their new territory and just kind of wanted to stay out of it and let, let the white people have their little civil war there. But again, the South seemed just more likely to let them continue on living in peace and they just kind of didn't trust the North to leave them alone. And so the, the Choctaw joined the South because of that as well. But again, I couldn't find the exact uh, numbers. But there were dedicated Choctaw regiments. Like you would have a Southern regiment, you know, whatever mm. number. And it was like a full Choctaw regiment. And the Seminoles we've talked about before in Florida, uh, they were kind of more split uh, with some joining either side. And actually more Seminoles joined the Union than joined the South. Those are just a few examples I found. There's just not great records on some of this stuff. I think we mentioned it last time. I forget which episode that was. And just some of this this native stuff is just kind of hard, hard to get good information. And I don't know if it wasn't recorded or if it's just kind of not put online. It's it's tough. But uh, natives did fight during the Civil War. Uh, and this time, this is even like. I feel like a lot of times you think like the American Revolution, you think a lot of the natives in their traditional, you know, thinly clad, helping alongside. I think in the Civil War, you had a lot more like, no, they're wearing, they're wearing the grays. Like they're, they're suiting up and they're, you know, they're with the rifles. They're, it's not the traditional tribal method. They're actually, I think, joining the rank and file uh, during the Civil War, more so than during the Revolutionary War. And we've mentioned before, I don't know if it was on air, but the, I do want to give the the real name of the character stands with a fist isn't directly based off of this woman, but it's definitely a similar story. There's one Cynthia Ann Parker who was captured by natives and then later quote freed by whites. But at that point she felt more native than white. And I'm actually not going to go into full detail on her now because we have the movie, the searchers coming up on our list and mm. that is actually also based on, loosely off of the story of Cynthia Ann Parker. So we'll talk about her more later when we get to the searchers. Um, any other notes that you had? Yeah, just to, I have a couple things. So because we've been doing Civil War movies for the last however many episodes, something that I have wanted to bring up, but haven't, mostly because of time, is the Confederate flag, um, which especially in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of kind of renewed debate and discussion over the Confederate flag. But something that I don't think is necessarily known about the what we consider today to be the Confederate flag, you know, the red flag with the blue X and the stars in it, that was never actually the flag of the Confederacy. Right, it's like a battle standard or something, right? Right. So the first the first flag of the Confederacy is called the Stars and Bars which is actually a name that is incorrectly associated sometimes with the what is known today as a Confederate flag. But the Stars and Bars was a flag that looks very similar to the United States flag. It's got the blue canton in the upper left corner with 13 stars in a circle. And instead of 13 stripes, it's three stripes, one big red one, one big white one, and another big red one. Why three? What did that represent? Do you know? I don't know. I don't okay. know what the three stripes represents. 
but that's just that's what they called it. It's you know because it has the stars and the big like thick Instead of stripes, it's red bars, yeah, lines. Yeah. Right. It's they call it the stars and bars, and so that was the flag from 1861 to 1863. But there were a lot of people that didn't like it and correctly pointed out that it looks very similar to the United States flag. And so when you're looking at flags, so oh no. In battles at this time, yeah. the way that you would know which forces were who is they would always carry a flag. So, like, when you see it, and it looks kind of silly today, because it's like, well, why in this whole battle there's, like, two guys whose only job is to hold the flag? That doesn't make any sense. Why are they not fighting like everybody else? Like, it's because the generals would be way far away, and they want to be able to see which forces are going where, and so you have to mark yourself with a flag. That's crazy. And so they would have a flag for, you know, whatever unit you are, you'd have your unit flag, and then you'd also have, like, your national flag. So, like, you know, an American unit would have a big American flag, and then, like, a big flag that would say, you know, it'd be, like, you know, like, across rifles and have some numbers on it or maybe some letters that would indicate what type of unit that is and who they belong to and all that stuff. Well, from a mile away, if your flag looks just like the American flag, you can't tell if that's an American <laughs> unit or your unit. Right. So they said, well, we'll change it then. We'll change it. So they introduced in 1863 what's called the stainless banner, which is basically the little, It's like a, it looks like a little kind of X type thing. I'm trying to pull up a picture of it. It's like a little red square with the blue X on a big white flag. Right. So it is one of the more traditional, quote, rebel flag, but on a white banner and it's just kind of in the a corner yeah correct and it didn't look anything like the american flag but then the complaint was well that looks like a surrender flag because it's a giant <laughs> right. white flag right so then from march 1885 until the end of the war the official flag of the confederacy was what was called the blood-stained banner so it was basically they took the stainless banner and put a big vertical red stripe on the right side so it's like yeah. okay now you're not going to mistake that for a surrender flag, and it also doesn't look anything like the American flag. Although that flag, the Bloodstained Banner, wasn't really used very much uh, because it was introduced in March of 1865, so like right before the end of the war, and it's not like the South had this had very much like industrial capacity to start cranking out new flags. <laughs> right. So even though it was the official flag, it was barely used at all. The flag that we know today commonly as the Confederate flag, it was initially submitted as a design for the national flag in 1861, but was rejected. But it was used by Robert E. Lee as the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. Mm. So in in Gettysburg, when we see the Army of Northern Virginia under the command of Robert E. Lee, and they all have those big square red flags that look like what we would call the Confederate flag today. That is accurate. That is the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. So, yeah, just a little bit of history on the on the Confederate flags. And the reason that there is, um, for I don't, I guess for anyone who's listening to this who doesn't know why that's controversial, number one, because of its association with slavery, but also because long after the Civil War was over, I'm talking like in like the 1920s through, you know, onward, there were groups that would use it as kind of an anti-civil rights thing. Like, they would use the flag as a symbol to show, like, we don't want, you know, we don't want black people to vote. We don't want them integrated in our schools. We don't want them to have this right or that right. Like, you know, we... Right. It was used as an explicit symbol for their racism. Uh, But there are also people 
who would use it as a genuine symbol of their southern heritage whether it's problematic or not they saw it as you know well my family is from alabama and you know my family never owned slaves or anything but like that's where i'm from and you know they it's like a symbol of my heritage and so you know how dare you accuse me of racism for flying this confederate flag but yeah that's that's why there is a lot of controversy surrounding it because of not only its association with slavery at the time that it was designed but also then like a hundred years later during the civil rights movement but i guess the comparable uh thing might be like oh well uh my family is of indian descent not native american like from the country of india and the swastika is a long symbol of uh, Hinduism going back, you know, thousands of years. So why are you looking at me like that for having a swastika flag outside my house in the United States? Because uh, there's other connotations that come with that. Right. So maybe that's yeah. a similar thing with like, okay, yes, you want your Southern pride, yeah. but dot, 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 that has right. a whole a lot of other baggage associated with it. Yes. And there are uh, multiple state flags that incorporate the same um, imagery. Like, for instance, the... I thought some had finally gotten rid of those. So like South Carolina, I thought, was still flying it until recently. Right. Some did. For instance, the state of Mississippi changed its flag to where it is. it now no longer has the X in it. But, like, the flag for the state of Georgia... Actually, you know what? That's actually... That's a good example. If you want to know what the Stars and Bars flag looks like... It's the flag of the state of Georgia. The only change is that Georgia puts their little seal, the little arches, in the middle of the circle of stars. But if you take that out, that's literally the stars and bars, the first flag of the Confederacy. Oh, right. Okay. Looks like it has more stars than the original stars and bars, but yeah. Yeah, and then like, you know, the flag of Arkansas is like a kind of a nod to that Confederate battle flag, um, as well as the flags of like Alabama and Florida with the X. That's why there's movements in those states to change the flag. But then a lot of, you know, for a lot of people too, they're like, well, like this is the state flag and it just kind of is what it is. So we don't want to, we don't want to change it. Right, right. But forgetting, I feel like that things have always changed forever. Like, I don't know, at some point it was decided upon. And then just because it hasn't changed in a while doesn't make it sacred necessarily. I mean, change can be okay. The one thing that just came to mind just now, and this is something, man, I really wish they would do. I don't think it ever happened. So there was, uh, this is probably 10, 15 years ago. It was the idea that, you know, Old Miss is the running rebels. And oh, right. Yeah. They, they had like that Johnny Reb as their mascot for the longest time. Mm-hmm. And I think they got rid of that. So like at some point, there was, I don't know if it was like a student vote or something. Basically, the idea was, oh, hey, we can still be the rebels, but let's make our mascot Admiral Akbar from Star Wars. Oh my gosh. And then we're like, the Star Wars Rebels, not the Civil War Rebels, and we're still the Ole Miss Rebels. <laughs> well, they they still are the Rebels, I think it's they just are still the, the rebels. mascot. Yeah. Right, but it looks, it looks like they have a shark mascot, on what I'm kind of Googling here, but I think the Johnny Reb uh, uh, imagery has kind of gone away, but they are still the Ole Miss Rebels, but the Civil War connotation has kind of been, I think, officially removed from the school. I'm just bummed that it never got Admiral Akbar as like part of their official stuff. Their mascot is now Tony the Land Shark, which replaced Rebel Black Bear in 2018, which replaced Colonel Reb in 2011. Colonel Reb, okay, okay. Yeah. I did have one more thing, too. Okay. And this is a short one. So we talked about glory last week. When Robert Shaw was killed, he had a personalized sword with the letters RGS stamped on the blade. When he was killed, that sword was stolen off of his body after 
or by Confederate soldiers after the Battle of Fort Wagner. It was returned to his family in 1865, but then disappeared. And no one knew where it was until descendants of Shaw's sister found it in their attic in 2017. Nuh-uh. And then, yeah, and then donated it to the Massachusetts Historical Society where you can go see it today. That's crazy. How does it... <laughs> That's crazy. I feel like someone would have known it was there, but then if they just leave it there and don't tell anyone, or, you know, like, just a couple people know. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that was just a... Uh, it was a video that was, like, re- it just showed up in my recommends. I think because I was watching so many Civil War history videos on YouTube. And I was oh, like, right. oh, do you want to watch this video about the discovery of Robert Shaw's sword in 2017? I was like, absolutely, yeah. I do. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> huh. All right, we ready to... Oh, uh, would you... There's probably no one from this episode to include on most interesting tournament candidates, huh? Because it's all fictional. Uh, yeah, I don't think so, because it's all... Yeah, it's all it's all fictional people. And then, like, all, everyone from the Civil War history stuff we already, we already talked about, so... Right, right. Is there a single historical figure in this film? Because, like, I think everybody's just made up. Um, Even the battle in the beginning, I think, is all fiction, fictional or unnamed generals. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, I'm, I'm looking at the cast on the Wikipedia page, and no one, none of the characters have a, right, have a blue right. link. So. Yeah. So, we didn't go a deep dive on the story of Danceable Wolves itself, but uh, the quick answer is they made it all up. <laughs> and that's okay. Uh, it still yeah. does a good job of... I think the spirit of the world at the time is still pretty good, even if the native stuff is... We well, could argue this, the soldier stuff, too. It's this overly simpl- simplified version, I think, of life at the time. But for a three-hour movie, that wasn't necessarily also its focus. But yeah, good show. Very surprised Logan had not seen it before. And next time, the Civil War is essentially done or will be done soon. We'll, we'll, we'll stop talking about the Civil War because we are going to talk about the man of the hour, Abraham Lincoln, played by our good friend Daniel Day-Lewis, who's been in multiple movies up to this point in our timeline, with the Steven Spielberg film, Lincoln.